So who is Jesus? I've been asking this important question, crucial question the last several weeks. There are those who don't know Jesus who say things like, oh, Jesus was a good man or he was a good teacher. Now, no offense, that's just dumb. Like, that's just a ridiculous thing to say because a good teacher would not say that he is one with God and that he enjoyed the love of God before the world even existed. That's not a good teacher. That's someone that would lose their job as a teacher and have to go see a psychiatrist. Nor a good man would not say to people he can forgive their sins. A good man would not receive worship. When people would bow down before him and say, my God, to Jesus. And he would willingly, joyfully receive the worship of people. See, Jesus is fully man, but he is fully God. And so he is our God, and so we worship him. But even those of us who do know that he is our God and our Savior, and we do bow down, we do worship him, we who have been healed from our spiritual blindness, we who have seen even just a glimpse of his infinite perfections, even we who walk in the light and are no longer part of the kingdom of darkness, even we who know our purpose, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, even we who long to be with him, we are still sinners. Yes, sinners who have been redeemed, sinners who have been saved by grace, sinners who have the Holy Spirit and who are being transformed and sanctified, and yet sinners, still sinners nonetheless. So when we ask the question, who is Jesus, this, this question is paramount for all humans, those that are saved and those that are not. We have to come to grips with who is Jesus. And according to the word and what we can see, the reality is that we are all desperate to see him more clearly, to know him better, and to reflect him more with our lives. This is what we were made for. This is our purpose, is to know God. And to truly enjoy him forever. Our problem, even though we are believers and have his spirit, we're redeemed. And yet, because we're still humans that are being sanctified and have not been resurrected physically yet, are not perfect in heaven and glorified because we're still in this process called sanctification of this ongoing being transformed to be like Jesus. Sometimes we can have erroneous or mistaken views of Jesus. We bring our own presuppositions, our own thoughts, into, and, and we impose that on the Bible and say Jesus is like this. And oftentimes it's not accurate. Maybe some examples. Sometimes we can subtly think of Jesus more as a therapist than as our King and Savior. And so as, as therapist Jesus, he just exists to be a good listener and to make you feel better about yourself. That's not Jesus. He's not your therapist. Others think of Jesus as more like their financial advisor. And so they approach Jesus and they think, well, I'm going to do good things, like go to church and 
try to be religious and put some money in the offering bag and try to be a good person. So I'm going to invest my moral capital and have great faith. And then my investor, Jesus, will give me some great returns on my investment. And, I, and I'm going to get wealth and I'm going to get a better job and I'm going to be guaranteed no illness. That's not Jesus. That's not biblical. He is not your financial investor. Others, sadly, because life has been unkind or disappointing or just plain hard, they see Jesus more like a harsh parent, maybe even an abusive parent. And you're trying to please him. You still want to please him, but the more you try, you feel like he, you're just never good enough and you just can't quite ever please this harsh parent, Jesus. And in your pain and in your brokenness, you, you can't understand why trusting in Jesus has led you to suffering or frustration or disappointment in life. And you're having a hard time reconciling your challenges with the fact that Jesus is your God and these challenges are still there. And so you're frustrated and you don't know what to make of that. Here's the truth. We belong to Jesus. If you have placed your complete trust in Christ alone, and you, then you have been saved by God's grace alone only because of your faith. It's not your, what you do to earn anything. It's what Jesus did for you. Then you already have God's approval. And he defines your identity. He defines your purpose. And so failure to truly know Jesus. Please hear me. Failure to know Jesus will lead you to disappointment. Failure to know Jesus will lead you to being in darkness and to having a dysfunctional life. It will. We need a fresh vision to see Jesus for who he is and ask the question, well, who is Jesus? We need to know him personally from his word so that we can not bring our erroneous thoughts and pose it upon him, but receive him for who he is and how he has revealed himself in his word. You see, when, when you don't know Jesus, again, it leads to dysfunction and darkness and disappointment. But when you do know Jesus, for real, it leads to a life filled with purpose, filled with hope and with joy. I didn't say problem-free, but purpose and hope and joy. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 52 in your Bibles. This morning, as we consider who is Jesus, we're going to read a prophecy that was written by a man named Isaiah who lived about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So this is important to understand the context. This was the 8th century B.C. And what was happening in the people of God in Israel, when Isaiah was writing, the Spirit of God inspired him to write this prophecy. The people of God were very disobedient, very sinful and idolatrous and would not repent, would not turn away from their evil. And God promised judgment. Judgment would come because they refused to repent and turn back to their God. And in the middle of a book that has so much judgment for refusal to repent... 
there's hope. And what you see here in Isaiah is hope in the middle of judgment. And so this points to Jesus. This is a messianic text. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the suffering servant. Isaiah 52, we reading verses 13, 14, 15, and then all of chapter 53. So Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form from beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that goes before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall righteous one, my servant, make men to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. This poem is astounding. Written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, describing the coming Messiah, the servant of God, the anointed one who would deliver his people from sin. And he's described here as the suffering servant. This song right here is just beautifully 
crafted. It's arranged with five parts, three verses for each part. So if you go through these 15 verses, each three verses is one part of these five. And parts one and five, beginning and end of this poem, serve as bookends. And so what you see in parts one and five, it shows the success of the servant. And so you see here that there's this theme of the success of God's servant. And then sections two and four, inside of those two bookends, in those two sections, what you see is describing the intense suffering of the servant. So the success and the suffering of the servant. And then in the middle, this third section and it's the heart and, and the center, not just of this poem, but it's the heart and center, really, of the scriptures. What you see here in those verses is God's rescue plan. It's the heart of God's redemptive plan to save his people from their sin through judging his Messiah. And so you see here exactly why the servant had to suffer, and then you see how he was successful in his victory. And so you see Messiah here was the substitute who endured the judgment, the wrath of God in our place. So in this poem, the way it's laid out, it's amazing. It's just so beautiful. It describes three primary themes. So the success the suffering, but also the substitution of the Messiah for us. This is describing Jesus. Isaiah 53 helps us to see who Jesus is. It says, you want to know who Jesus is? It's right here. It's screaming it for us to see, to believe, to treasure, and then to live our lives in light of Jesus and his gospel. Which is why, if you fast forward 700 years later in Acts chapter 8, when the Spirit of God is now in believers, Christ has died, resurrected, ascended back to the Father, and you have all of this missionary evangelistic explosion, churches being planted, lives being changed, and you have Philip, who is traveling on the road, and there's this caravan going to Ethiopia. And among them, there's this man who is reading these exact verses that we just read. He's reading these verses. And Philip hears him reading Isaiah 53. And he says, do you know what that's talking about? And the man says, I, I got nothing. Can you help me? And it says in Acts 8, it says, Philip told him the good news of Jesus. From Isaiah 53. And Luke 22, verse 37, Jesus quotes Isaiah 53. And Jesus says, this must be fulfilled in me. And so you have many more examples, but that's just a couple how in the New Testament it's, it's defining, it's interpreting this as prophetic, messianic, pointing to fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah of God. And so who is Jesus? We're asking this question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the suffering servant. Now you're thinking, okay, well, that's great, but I don't know exactly what that really entails and why or how that's going to really impact my life today. Well, let's work through this text with three questions. And through these three questions, we're going to better understand who Jesus is so that we can know him 
better. That's what we want. Amen? To know Jesus. And then to know how to apply this to make him known. We want to apply this to our lives. So question number one. What exactly did Jesus suffer? So we're saying he's a suffering servant. That's who he is. But what exactly did he suffer? Well, we see here that there are three types of suffering. The first type of suffering is physical. So Jesus endured intense physical pain and suffering. And you see it in this text, promising what would happen many years later. I mean, we just read it says that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He didn't even look human. He was so badly beaten. It says he was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed. This is the language of Isaiah 53 describing what happened to Jesus. So he endured horrific physical pain, being bitten, beaten, whipped, where his, his back was just shreds of blood. Nails pierced through his hands and suffocating and drowning in his own blood. What you see on the cross is absolutely intense physical suffering. It's gruesome. But that wasn't even the worst part of his suffering. Secondly, he suffered relational suffering. So he had physical suffering, but also relational suffering. We just read, he says, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus loved people. He healed them. He forgave them. He brought them to the very presence of God. And he had his closest friends that he did life with for three years. And one of them betrayed him. So Jesus experienced deep and profound betrayal by a loved one. Not only that, but Jesus experienced abandonment. Because on the night that he would be arrested, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is experiencing just the worst possible spiritual attack and his soul was in anguish and agony with this mental anguish and emotional pain and realizing what's about to happen the next morning and it was so intense and such agony and he's praying father please remove this cup from me but only if it's your will and he's sweating blood and he goes to his closest friends for support and they're checked out. They're asleep. They weren't there for him. He was alone. He was despised, not esteemed, rejected by men, by his closest friends. He, they let him down, abandoned. And the next morning he's crucified, alone. And so Jesus experienced relational suffering. He's pure and holy, and yet on the cross, he's experiencing shame, humiliation. He's naked. He's being mocked and ridiculed. And so Jesus knows pain. He knows relational brokenness. And so he experiences atrocious physical pain, 
deep relational suffering, but neither was the worst part of his suffering. The third type of suffering was by far the worst, which is spiritual suffering. Verse 10 says that his suffering was the will of God. Yet it was the will of God to crush him and put him to grief. This was the plan and will of the Father. On the cross, Jesus was not only abandoned by his closest friends, he was forsaken by God. Quoting Psalm 22, on the cross, he cries out, My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't just feel forsaken. He was forsaken by God. The intimacy, that closeness, that love that he experienced from eternity, past, that he so enjoyed the Father was broken. In that moment when God was pouring out his wrath and his judgment upon Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin. And so God had to because God cannot be in communion with anyone that is sinful. Jesus was not sinning, let's be clear. He was not committing sin on the cross. He was enduring our sin. Like it says in Psalm Isaiah 53, it says that he bore the sins of many. He bore our sins. And so he experienced being forsaken by God, experienced separation from God. That was the most agonizing part for Jesus it says in verse 11, the anguish of his soul was his God forsaking him. This is Jesus. This is the suffering servant. He experienced ultimate physical, relational, and spiritual suffering. So let's go to the second question. Question number two, why? Why did Jesus have to suffer like that? Why? Well, verse 7 that we just read, it says that he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And so Jesus is the ultimate lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the, the ultimate and final Passover lamb. This is who Jesus is, our sacrifice, who was our substitute, who alone can atone for our sin. He picked up the bill and he paid our sin debt in full that we owe it against our God. And so let's just go a little bit deeper and specific and dig and think, okay, so Jesus paid the price, but why did he have to suffer physical suffering? Well, think about it. Physical pain, physical suffering is a result of sin. If there were no sin, there would be no physical pain. Physical suffering is part of the curse. So evil has physical manifestations. So just think, things like violence, hunger, disease, death, those things are physical and they exist because of sin, because of God's curse on this world. So there's a price to pay for having rebelled against God and physical pain is one of those. So there are consequences for our sin, including physical ones. Which is why Jesus in the Gospels repeatedly spoke about hell being a physical experience. 
not spiritual, physical. And so you see at the end of Revelation, the resurrection of the dead unto judgment. People resurrected and then physically thrown into the lake of fire. It's not a disembodied state. It is a physical, torturous, suffering place. And Jesus endured physical suffering on the cross in the ultimate sense because he was paying the price for our sin in full that also required physical. And so he came so that we, as our substitute, so that we can enjoy, as we're trusting in him, ultimately, we can enjoy eternal health and eternal joy and healing and eat of the tree of life that's healing for all the nations. That's what awaits us, those that trust in Christ alone. So he had to suffer physically. What about relationally? Why did he have to have relational suffering? Well, relational pain is a result of sin as well. It's also part of the curse. If it wasn't for sin, there would be no relational brokenness. Husbands would not abuse their wives. Wives would not disrespect their husbands. Kids would not disobey their parents. Employers would not abuse their employees. So relational pain and brokenness is a result of sin. And so things like divorce and isolation, abandonment, abuse, shame, mocking, bullying, hatred, all, all of these relational problems are a result of the fall. And so there is part of the cost that has to be paid for our sin. And so again, ultimate judgment, hell is a place of darkness, isolation, and of suffering. And so Jesus had to endure on the cross this relational isolation and pain because he was paying it in full. He was paying the price completely, suffering on the cross for you and me. What about spiritual suffering? Why did he have to suffer this spiritual suffering? Well, what is the essence of spiritual suffering? Separation from God. That's what it is. Separation from God is what leads to spiritual suffering. Because you were made for God. So you were made for him, by him, for his glory. So you were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the enjoyment of God is how you glorify him. So when we fail to enjoy him, we enjoy other things more, then we're not glorifying him. And so the praising of his name, the enjoying him, the treasuring him, the savoring his goodness, so the enjoyment of God is glorifying to him. So we were made to know him, to enjoy him. That's our purpose. And so when someone is far from God, they're in darkness. They're spiritually dead. They don't have vitality. They don't know God. They don't enjoy him. And so they're not glorifying him. It leads to pain and, and suffering and ultimately to eternal death. Just like a fish was made for water, you were made for God. But sin separates. That's what it does. If you don't think so, then parents, whenever your child disrespects you and you say, just go to your room because I can't see you right now. What is that? That's separation. 
when, when a husband disrespects his wife, he's on the couch that night. That's separation. Right? Sin separates. Sin breaks relationship. Not just with us, but with God. And so our sin has broken our relationship with God. And so Jesus on the cross had to experience this separation, this spiritual suffering. So he was cut off from God because he was paying the full price for our rebellion and our sin. Which is why you see this awe-inspiring word in Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. This is why he came. He was our substitute. He suffered in every possible way, physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually. He suffered all of it, enduring the wrath of God. And don't forget how this poem begins setting the stage in verse 12 of chapter, I'm sorry, verse 13, chapter 52. It says that he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And so, yes, he suffered, but he's not hanging on the cross anymore. He's not suffering anymore. He painted in full. He died, and the debt was paid. And so the father said, I'm not angry anymore. So he resurrected him. And so he's alive and victorious, and he's exalted, and his victory is our victory. And he had to suffer to display the glory of God by rescuing you and me. This is why he suffered. It was the only way for condemned sinners like you and me to be brought near to God. Our sin is great, but the mercy of God is greater. Our shame is great, but the grace of God is greater. And I know that our failures are great, but the love of God is greater. And I know that our brokenness is great, but the healing, resurrecting power of God is greater. Jesus is greater. He is greater. And the cross proves it. Isaiah 53 promised it. He came. He accomplished it. Fully man, fully God. Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, our first love, living water, bread of life, our only hope. This is Jesus. And He loves you. He treasures you. But I'm so messed up, Pastor. Yes, you are. Jesus knows. That's why he died for you. So that one day, 
he won't be messed up anymore. And on this side of heaven, you already have a taste of it. You have a taste of it right now. With his justification, with his spirit indwelling you, he is sanctifying you and using you. And my heart for this church has been, continues to be, that you would just be amazed what God can do through you in glorifying him by making and developing disciples, all for his name to be lifted high in Abu Dhabi. He loves you and there is hope for you. Whatever you are going through today, you have to know this. Jesus knows pain. The suffering servant knows suffering. He is wise. He is good. He knows what he's doing. He is sovereign in control of your life. And so you don't have to think that your life is spiraling out of control because it's not. You just got this. You can entrust your soul to him. Last question, number three. So, okay, so how does the suffering of Jesus impact my life today? So let's, let's, let's think, how does this really impact my life today? So as a suffering servant, he purchased redemption, our salvation, that we don't deserve, we could never hope to earn, only received by complete trust in Christ. So because of his work on the cross, I'll, I'll give you three thoughts here on how it impacts you today. Number one, you belong to the community of Christ. Because of what he did on the cross, you trusting in him, now you belong to this community of Christ. So look around the room. No, I'm serious. Look around the room. What do you see? You're like, oh, I just see people. I just see a room full of people. So what? So what? You know what I see when I look around this room? I see the glory of God being displayed. This is what I see when I look around this room here in this gathering of New Life Church in Abu Dhabi. I do. I see God displaying his glory in and through you in this place. What I see, what you should see, is a redeemed people. I see a people that have been resurrected spiritually, that await the future bodily resurrection. You know what I see? I see people who are made new by the power of God. I see a people in this room that no longer belong to the kingdom of darkness, but now belong to the kingdom of light and worship King Jesus. I see a people that are forgiven, that are adopted, that have been chosen, that have been justified, that have been called, that have been sealed, that have been sanctified. I see a people that are indwelt by the Spirit of God who experience His presence and have eternal worth and value. What I see in this room is glorious because we belong to God. Forget the messages, what the world tells you of what gives you value. You define your worth by what you read in the Bible. You matter. You belong to the people of God. You belong to this particular faith family. This is a community of the cross, we've all tasted the same mercy of God. We're all saved the same way. So I don't care where you're from, your nationality, your accent, I've got one too. 
I don't care your, 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 your income level, your social status, what your job description is. None of that matters. We are one people in Christ. That's who we are. And because we're, we're part of this community of the cross, what this also means is that we forgive our brothers and our sisters. It means that we extend mercy because we have received the mercy of God. It means that when you have a problem with someone, you don't run away. You don't just leave the church because it got hard. We don't do it. That's not our option. If you're a member of this church, then you work it out. You go to your brother. You don't gossip. You go to your sister and you work it out. We need each other. We're part of the community of faith. This is eternal. It's so much bigger than you or me. So we forgive. We love. We serve each other. We do not give up. This is so much bigger than you or me. We're part of the people of God called out for his purpose. That's what this means. Second thought on what this means is, what this means, number two, is you can give your life away with joy. Thinking, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand that. What do you mean give your life away with joy? Isaiah 53 reveals that the Messiah would one day suffer and die so that God's people could be redeemed. But it also says that he would be resurrected. In verse 10, it said he would have prolonged days. We know that that means eternity. And then verse 12 says that the Messiah who would be resurrected would have the spoils of victory over the enemy. So he is victorious. And so what this does is it gives you and me confidence. We should not be timid in accomplishing the mission he gave to us. He is calling you for a particular purpose. And you have to be quiet before your God and, say, and have God speak to you because he is. Do you hear him speaking to you? If you have a spirit, he is. He'll give you desires. He'll put things on your heart. He wants you to see how he can work through you. You can give your life away. You have received the mercy for the mission. You've been saved to serve. Your life is not your own. You're part of the kingdom of God, and our purpose is to see the borders expand. There's more people come under the reign of Jesus as they repent and trust in him as well. So God is saving you so you can see him and savor him, be consumed by him, and then make him known through your life. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We give our lives away for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. Here's the paradox. It seems to not make sense. It seems backwards. But if you live for your agenda, if you live for yourself, your own small self-centered purposes, and you think that you're saving up for yourself, you're going to come up empty. So you're trying to fill yourself with what you can achieve, and you're going to be empty. But on the other hand, if you give it away, you're going to be full. You give it away for Jesus, for his 
sake. And so because of what he's done on the cross for us, we can have the confidence to go that he is with us. We have his promised presence, and we can live lives that are fruitful. We can grow, and we can be on mission for him, give our lives away, and feel his pleasure and his satisfaction. We can give our lives away with joy. Number three, as we close, because what he's done for us, as suffering servant, we, you, can suffer with hope. We're all going to have some kind of suffering. We're on earth. This is not heaven. We expect too much sometimes from earth, and we want it to be heaven right now. The reality is that suffering, discomfort, disease, and ultimately death is a reality of this world. That's why Jesus came, to make all things new. But we're not in heaven yet, and so we will have suffering. But because of what he did, you can suffer with hope. Suffering is real, but so is Jesus. He suffered. So what makes us think that we're going to be exempt from suffering? We're not. We're going to suffer as well. But God in his sovereignty uses our suffering, our pain, he uses it for his glory and our good. Lots of ways, but I'll give you some examples. One is he exposes our idolatry. Oftentimes when we go through hard times, God is doing that to reveal that we have been turning to an idol for joy, meaning, and comfort. And God is saying, no, son, daughter, you need to give up that idol. It's going to destroy you. It's taking you far from me. Sin separates. And so God allows hard things to happen so that you will come to your senses and repent and run from that idol and run to him. That's what he's doing. Suffering also reminds us of how needy we are, how we need him. Sometimes we forget. And so hard times remind us, oh, yeah, he is God and I'm not. He's got this. I don't. And we need those hard times. So are you disappointed today or struggling or in pain? Hebrews 12.2 tells us what to do. It says, looking to Jesus. There's a key. You're struggling? Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It says, for the joy that was set before him, hear that, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He suffered the cross by focusing on future glory, and that gave Jesus the hope to have joy even with the suffering on the cross. And we can do the same. We can have our eyes fixed on Jesus and a future glory. And we can have the joy that's set before us as we endure difficulties. But we have to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. There's nowhere else to look. And so this hope of glory, it, it makes suffering bearable because you know that God is using it for his glory and for our ultimate good so we don't have to turn to enslaving idols we can hope in him so who is Jesus he is a suffering servant we have hope 
We can have joy. We have life. We have a mission. We have a purpose. May we fall before our Savior, worship Him, and live for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are truly in awe of your splendor and majesty. We praise you for the work that you did when you sent your son, and he took our sin and offers us now forgiveness and life. We're just overwhelmed by this, and we just pray right now for anyone in this room that does not know you. May they repent of their sins and run to you and truly trust you, Jesus, And may they experience this same salvation. And may we truly be on mission to proclaim this good news to those in our lives so that we can see others join us with hands lifted high, praising you for you are worthy. And we pray this for your son's kingdom in his name, Jesus. Amen.